Welcome to a live taping of Problematic Women, where we're going to dive into sex, feminism, and socialism. I'm Lauren Evans, producer for The Daily Signal. And I'm Virginia Allen, a contributor at The Daily Signal. And today we're going to start usually where we end. So I want to poll our audience by raising your hand. Who here considers themselves a feminist? Raise your hand. See about oh. five, six hands. Okay, can, can any of these ladies shout why? Why do you consider yourself, or gentlemen, why, why do you consider yourself a feminist? Men and women are equal. I like it. Anyone else? Why? It gets you more chance for with women to answer. <laughs> <laughs> any ladies want to answer, why do you consider yourself a feminist? Do you want to Round just come up box. here? We'll give you the microphone. We're just going to sit down. <laughs> she said she was a first wave feminist, which is a great answer. Yeah. So how many of you would say, I definitely do not consider myself a feminist? Raise of hands. All right. So maybe about 10 hands. The rest of you aren't sure yet. That's okay. So we do see that. Um, and, and I do want to ask for those that said, I definitely am not a feminist. Why? So and this, this gentleman said he would like us to define feminism. Yeah, that's so critical to actually take the time to define what we mean by feminism. So yeah, depending upon the country and what you see in that country, you might consider yourself to be a feminist, not in America, but maybe in the Middle East. So your stance on feminism is removing that judgment away from women. Okay, great. So as we see in this room, there's so many different ways that just this group of people find very, very different ways to define feminism. Even I feel like Lauren and I have differences in the way that do we really identify as a feminist or not? What does that mean? Right now, unfortunately, in society, it's pretty clear cut from the far progressive left what it means to be a feminist. And we see this a lot on Twitter, our good friend Twitter. (laughs) So if you look at a tweet like this, this is a contributor at Teen Vogue. She said, for at Teen Vogue, I discussed the relationship between our patriotic anthems and racism. What that has to do with feminism? Not sure. Or this one, stigma who, no matter your reason for taking birth control, defend and flaunt your right to choose. And she's made earrings out of her packets of birth control. This is a tweet that the Women's March retweeted. Another one from our good friends over at Teen Vogue, can't hashtag end poverty without ending capitalism. And real keeper here. Also from Teen Vogue, the legacy of Karl Marx's ideas and how they're relevant to the current political climate. And it's a whole article telling you what you need to learn as a young woman about Karl Marx. So this is now what we're seeing from the far left as as the message of this is what it means to be a feminist. This is what it means to really stand up for women. And if you consider yourself as an advocate for women, you need to embrace abortion on demand. You need to embrace socialism. And that that's disturbing. Uh, and it's disturbing because it's it's not representative of truly what it means to stand for women. So that's why problematic women exist. It exists to be this platform that says you can be a conservative. You can love free markets. You can stand for traditional values. And you can be 100% a feminist. You can be 100% for women. Or not a feminist if you are. Or want. not a feminist. Yeah, which I don't, I, I still don't feel totally comfortable with that term, whereas Lauren does. Yeah, I'm 100% a feminist. 
<laughs> and it's fun because on, on our show, Problematic Women, we always end our podcast asking guests that question. Do you consider yourself a feminist? And it's so funny that we get people very, very quickly saying no. <laughs> and some people being like, yes, yes, absolutely. Lauren, though, I do want to hand it over to you and just ask you to kind of explain a little bit of what we're seeing now and this transition around feminism. I actually want to go into why we started Problematic Women, and the, which is, it came out of this Elle magazine article called, quote, how do we criticize problematic women? And I want to read you a quote. Um, this is from June 15th, 2017, that just kind of gives you a flavor of what this article was about. It said, quote, we should not weep for Theresa May or any other conservative woman whose policies contribute to the continued oppression of women and minorities. Even the most moon-eyed believer in feminist sisterhood must realize it's got to stop somewhere. Any harm done to Kellyanne Conway by calling her Skeletor is vastly outweighed by the harm that Conway has done and intends to do from the American people. So our friend and our co-host, Kelsey Bowler, flagged this, and she wrote a really great response in The Federalist called, Nasty Women Target Problematic Women, and We're Not Going Anywhere. And this really stuck with us. All, like all the examples Virginia just showed, the left continues to define any woman who stands up for anything conservative as anti-woman, which is just not true. And it made us upset and angry because these are the same women who that same year marched down the streets in D.C. with their pink hats and all of these signs that say, you know, tolerance and love one another. But then they openly admitted that it's okay to judge a woman on her physical appearance and it's okay to judge a woman just because they don't believe what you want them, want them to believe. It stuck out with us so much that in July of 2017, we started a Facebook Live show out of our studio, and we just wanted to showcase these problematic women who are getting left out of the conversation. I was producing. Kelsey would be on camera. We tried a couple different co-hosts in the first few episodes, but we found Brie Payton. She was amazing. She was on the show. And for a year and a half, we went to the White House. We covered women's marches, protests, March for Life. The show went from a Facebook Live show to a podcast that we record. We've done social media videos. And it was just this really great product that we were able to provide for the Daily Signal. We got lots of really great feedback. I've met the most amazing women and, and just learned really insights about them. However, at the end of last year, Brie passed away. And it was really hard for our show. And we took four months to really focus on these topics and, and what's important in life. Her name meant bright, um, like a bright star, and she was that in our lives, and she was that in the show. But why I'm bringing this up is because we had to take some time to think about why were we doing this, and who are we doing this for? And we thought a lot about, are we trying to reach people in the middle and, and bring them into this feminist movement, this conservative feminist movement? And we realized that's not what we were doing. We want to reach women and men, but mostly women on campus or young, young adults who believe that they're alone, that they believe that because they're conservative, because they believe in free markets, because they believe in traditional values, that they aren't pro-woman. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. So we wanted to be a voice for these women. We wanted to stand alongside these women. So we came back in April with an episode called Problematic Women, What Brie Payton's Mom and Friends Want You to Know About Grief. And ever since then, we've been releasing regular episodes. We're on iTunes. We're on Overcast. We're on Spotify. Really anywhere you get Kelsey has had a little baby, um, so she's not here. So Virginia stepped in and co-hosts. So 
Kelsey's baby. So cute. She's so cute. Uh, but it's, it's been a blast to get to step in and help out with problematic women this year. And it's been incredible to see just in 2019 what we've accomplished. We've covered the transgender movement and really looking at it from, from the angle of a woman. How is this affecting us? And really diving into the sports issue. We did a documentary, Lauren and Kelsey did a documentary on Selena Soul, who's a track athlete. And she was for to sit on the sidelines during a major track competition because two men who identified as transgender could run faster than her and took her spot. So it's those issues that we're so proud to talk about at Problematic Women. We covered the hashtag MeToo movement and looking at the allegations laid against now Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Again, looking at it from a perspective of women saying, of course, women need those, those protections. They need to be heard. But just because you're a woman doesn't mean that we automatically believe you. So we are going to save questions for the end. But don't worry. Please hold them. There's going to be a great Q&A session. We discussed the gender wage gap. Does it actually exist? Is, is that a real thing? And we also managed to have quite a lot of fun on the podcast. Lauren is a pretty devoted Kanye West fan. <laughs> and I was not when I started the podcast, but I must say, now, now she I is. am. Now she is. <laughs> so once his new album dropped, Jesus is King, it was like every week Lauren was like, okay, how can we talk about Kanye this week? <laughs> Uh, I've been successful. I think so too. At the end of every episode, we crown a problematic woman of the week. And that's just, you know, one woman who's really stood out um, for her values. And I tried probably for three weeks to try to crown Kanye West as problematic woman of the week. (laughs) And I stood firm. I was like, Lauren, he's not a woman. We're not crowning him as problematic woman of the week. (laughs) But he does have some great music. So be sure to listen. All right. Well, let's bring it back to talking about sex, feminism and socialism. How did we get here? How did we get today from going all the way back from we kind of see those early roots of the women's movement, you know, talking about a woman's right to vote and equal treatment in the workplace to now this kind of real, real woke feminism that is what we saw in those tweets where it's, you know, pushing for your right to abortion and pushing for socialism and these ideologies. So Lauren, this is a topic that, uh, that you're super passionate about. Uh, and I would love you just to share a little bit of that history with us. So I want to start right before the civil war around the 1840s. Women are becoming increasingly frustrated with their role in society. They don't have the right to vote in most States. Um, they're just seen as kind of pious. You don't leave the home in 1848. The Seneca Falls Convention is kind of the birthplace of women's suffrage. These women were mainly religious, they were pro-life, and they just wanted equal constitutional protections. One of their main slogans is that all men and women are created equal. You guys know what happened in the 1860s. It was the Civil War, and that movement kind of paused. After the war ended, there was some infighting for about 20 years, but in 1890, they were able to make up those divisions. These women in the turn of the century, they really fought. Like they, they actually fought for all these rights that we take for granted today. In 1913, on the eve of President Wilson's inauguration, thousands of suffragists peacefully marched to the White House. And while they were peacefully marching, they were tripped. They were pushed around. They were attacked. Hundreds of women were injured. And the police didn't do anything to help these women. And Lauren, why do you use that term suffragists instead of what we usually hear suffragettes? So suffragettes is actually a derogatory term. The men at the time would say like, oh, look at these cute little suffragettes. 
oh, look at these little suffragettes. Um, but they prefer to be called suffragists and keep themselves more professional. A fact that I learned from the president of the Heritage Foundation, Kay Coles James. So we all know the 19th Amendment passed in 1920. And Things were pretty good for women for, for their time. They did get the right to vote, but they didn't see a lot of societal change right away. They were still expected to be in the home. They didn't have many career options, and really education wasn't a choice for them as well. Yeah, I remember my mom telling me she's a baby boomer, and she's told me many times, you know, growing up, I thought I had three options. I could be a nurse, I could be a secretary, or I could be a teacher. And that was it. And fortunately, after college, she kind of realized, oh, I, I have more options. And she had a very successful career as a writer. But there was sort of this awakening in the 1960s because of Betty Friedan, who wrote the authored uh, The Feminist Mystique. And she kind of tapped in to this longing that was in women that they were saying, you know, I, I kind of feel like there's, there's a little bit more to life. I should have more options. And, you know, if I want to be a lawyer, like, am I allowed to even pursue that or, or think those thoughts? And it was this deep kind of churning in women of, well, I, I love being a mom and I love raising children, but I would like to be told that, you know, if I want to pursue a career, I want to be empowered to do that. So we began to, to see this shift and this awakening and this really powerful movement that became the women's movement. Yeah, so this is kind of the, right the very beginning of second wave feminism, and the feminist mystique came out in 1963. So this is kind of right when it started. And honestly, second wave feminism in the beginning was fine. Th these are women who have legitimate claims. There were men and women help wanted ads. Um, if you were a woman and you got pregnant, you could be fired with no consequences. So Betty Friedan, the same author of The Feminist Mystique, found an organization that you are all probably aware of right now, the National Organization of Women. There's a really great book called Subverted by a woman named Sue Ellen Browder, my own personal hero, and she can pinpoint the day that second wave feminism went from something great to something terrible. And that was November 18th, 1967. It was in the Chinese room of the Mayflower Hotel in Washington, D.C., and it was the second annual conference of this national organization for women. There were about 100 people present, and they were voting on, quote, a bill of rights for women. Most of it they agreed upon. They voted on the now-defeated ERA, but they also agreed on the stuff that I think most of us in this room would agree on, that women have an equal right to an education, women have a right to maternity leave, deducting your child care on your taxes. But what kind of was the major shift is at the last moment, Betty Friedan surprised the group on whether or not the Bill of Rights should include abortion rights. And it wasn't just women that were pushing to say, we need abortion. There was a man involved, right? Yeah. So Larry Later, he is known for starting NARAL, and his New York Times obituary was actually called Lawrence Later, Champion of Abortion Rights, is dead at 86. So literally, this idea of adding in abortion to the National Organization of Women's Bill of Rights came directly from a man. It narrowly passed. So out of the 100 women, 57 voted for to add this to the Bill of Rights. Those who opposed were so angry at Betty Friedan, one-third walked out in protest. But however, that didn't matter. The press ran with the National Organization passed this Bill of Rights that in, it now includes abortion, repealing all abortion laws, and that's how effectively the abortion movement and the women's right, rights movement became one and the same. 
And it also opened the door for the sexual revolution to take hold of this feminist movement, which we could talk about that for the whole 45 minutes. Uh, I, I want to plug again Sue Ellen Browder's book, Subverted, How the Sexual Revolution Hijacked the Women's Movement. It, it's so fascinating, and it really just shows how this one event created a ripple in our culture. Um, and we're actually doing a documentary at the Daily Signal on her that should be out in early 2019. Um, so you guys know kind of what happened in the 60s and 70s where the sexual revolution really flourished. But I want to fast forward to 2017. President Trump was just inaugurated and a group of women decided that they didn't like him, which is their prerogative. And they started organizing online. And with the help of the media, the Women's March blew up. I'm sure you're all very familiar with this organization, but unlike the National Organization of Women, they didn't even hold a vote on their unity principles. They just released them, and just like in 1968, the media reported on them like it's what all women believe. And I quickly want to go through them. So their first unity principle is ending violence. I think all of us in this room don't want violence against women, except that's not what they're talking about. They're talking about police brutality in their first unifying principle. Number two, reproductive rights. They're now going farther than the National Organization of Women that they want abortion paid for and on demand. Number three, LGBTQIA rights, which women have the right to have their stance on LGBTQ rights, but not every woman has the same stance. There are religious women. There are women who just don't believe in this. Number four, workers' rights. Number five, civil rights. Again, something I think most in this room would be for. Except, no, they're not talking about civil rights. They're talking about the Equal Rights Amendment. Number six, disability rights. That's probably the only good one. Number seven, immigrant rights, that we shouldn't have borders or no human being is illegal. Number eight, environmental justice, a.k.a. we need the new Green New Deal. So we started from first wave feminism, where it was just literally about all men and women are created equal, to now we're at a point where if you're a woman, you must support the Green New Deal or else you're not or you can't be a feminist. And one of the tenets that now we have really seen the women's movement of today embrace is socialism. And Morgan Zingers is the founder of Young Americans Against Socialism, and she's going to be joining us in just a moment. So she started Young Americans Against Socialism as a 501c3 nonprofit organization that enlightens young Americans to the dangers of socialism using social media. In 2018, Zingers was the Republican candidate for New York's 113th Assembly District, running on a platform of transparency, lower taxes, and support for upstate businesses to counter Governor Andrew Cuomo's radical and corrupt administration. Zinger has appeared on Fox News, BBC World News, CNN, Vice News, and more to discuss growing support for socialism in her generation and how we can really engage young people on this issue. She is also a frequent speaker at events and college campuses around the country, focusing on common sense steps we can take to combat our generation's embrace of socialism. So Morgan, come on up and join us. We're really excited to hear from you. Morgan, as I mentioned in your bio, in 2018, you ran as the Republican candidate for New York's 113th Assembly District. And in 2019, you started your organization, Young Americans Against Socialism. This is such a wild time in our nation's history. 
to get involved in politics. I think most of us would kind of look at the political scene and think, I don't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole. But yet you've chosen to jump in and get involved. Why? Yes, well, thank you guys for having me, and thank you everybody for being here. I ran for assembly, but it wasn't that I was like, oh, I'm going to be a congresswoman in the future, and I'm going to run for this office and then this office and grow my reputation. It was actually, I was just in a very small town, and it's a very conservative Republican area, and they needed a little spunk in the party. They needed a little spunk in the news for uh, the district because we were running against a very boring candidate that wins every year against a Republican in a very conservative district. And so they asked me to run. And I hadn't even graduated college yet. And so I said, can we guarantee the endorsement meetings will be after I graduate or something? And and so we ended up doing them during my January break before my last semester. And then I would commute the six hours back and forth almost every week to go to the campaign events and then also graduate in time. And it was a great experience. I lost by 13%, but I would still do it again because I care about upstate New York, not necessarily the political clout that comes with running so young. So I want to go back to those socialist policies that we were just talking about. And one of the kind of signs that you see all the time at these liberal marches, especially the women's march, is that we want socialism like in these Norwegian countries, Finland, Denmark, Sweden, and they're doing great. So why shouldn't we implement that in the United States? Yeah. And what we're doing with Young Americans Against Socialism is we're taking a very positive approach to this messaging. Obviously, I love a good political fight. I love a good Republican versus Democrat Twitter fight. I love going at them in a debate. But Is the fight against socialism really the fight against other people in our generation that think they want socialism? It is not. We have to define who our real enemy is. Who are we combating in this? And I see 70% from the Victims of Communism poll recently came out, 70% of people our age would vote for a socialist. Do I believe that 70% of people our age want to seize the means of production? No. I don't think they know what that is. (laughs) Because you have Bernie Sanders who tells us from the 1980s all the way up that he supports Castro, that he supports Cuba, that he went to Nicaragua and trained Ortega in the forest, the Sandinistas, that he supported Venezuela. He said on his government website in 2011, his government website said the American dream was more apt to be realized in Venezuela than in the United States of America. So when you see him in 2019 on CNN or on MSNBC telling us, oh, no, no, I'm talking about Nordic Europe. I'm talking about Denmark and Sweden. I don't want to talk about Cuba and Venezuela. That's not what I mean. He's lying. Because Nordic Europe is a market economy. They have big taxes, big government programs. That's fine. Be a Democrat. Advocate for that stuff. But he'll go on Twitter the next day and say, we need to seize the means of production of the utilities industries in this country to fight climate change. We need to have government-run industries. Some of our largest industries in this country. That's not Nordic Europe. That's Venezuela. That's Latin American socialism. And so what we're trying to do with the ass is set the definitions because I know everybody in our generation wants to help people and we want to equip them with the knowledge and the truth that they deserve. They're being lied to and we're trying to dispel that. And I think one of the biggest draws to socialism for young people is the promise of free college, of student loans being paid off. And as someone who has a lot of student debt, I'm like, well, that sounds nice, but Are we kind of being sold a a bill of goods? (laughs) Oh, yeah. We are very much being sold on something. And uh, when I speak on college campuses specifically, I have a speech where I talk about the three points that the socialists and the far left in America is using against people our age right now. And they're the same points that have been used in countries all throughout our world's history. And the first one, I thought it was interesting just to touch on this. 
one of the ones, have you guys read The Road to Serfdom? Anybody in this book by Hayek? I love that book. I really take that into mind whenever we talk about our video messaging for YAS content. But he talks about socialists for hundreds of years have changed the meanings of basic words that we've always used. And so think of freedom, equality, opportunity, fairness. Bernie Sanders will post a video on social media and say, what's freedom? And then it'll be young people saying, am I free if I have student loan debt? Am I free if I have high health care costs? Am I free if I only work my dead-end job? That is a quote. If I'm, am I free if I only work my dead-end job to get health care insurance? Yes. You're still free. Congratulations. <laughs> but does the video tell you that? No. The video follows up with, mm-mm, you're not free. Freedom comes from economic freedom. And economic freedom comes from Medicare for All and the student loan forgiveness and free college and the Green New Deal. And they have literally changed what freedom means to people our age. And I think they've done the same thing with feminism. So I define myself as a feminist now because I want to take the word back. Because I believe... Thank you. We actually call it reclaiming the F word. Reclaiming the F word. We're doing it. And I really think it's important to to claim that word again and take it back, like you said, and not let them distort another word that our country really believes in and is founded on, uh, equality. Um, But moving into that, the first step is they change the narrative. They change the language. The second step is this is what we're being sold on. When Che Guevara, you guys know him, Che Guevara, all the T-shirts that young people are wage. (laughs) Yes, he's a murderer. His name, his nickname was The Butcher. So, you know, when you see young people our age wearing his T-shirts to coffee shops, it's great stuff. Um, But Che Guevara and Fidel Castro, when they first landed in Cuba, They had the first fight with Batista, and they were literally shrunk down to numbers in the teens, like 17 soldiers, and they had to grow their numbers again. So what they did is they went to little peasant towns along the way on their, like, storming to Havana movement, and they would go to the peasants and say, hey, guys, I know you're a little frustrated right now because you know those, those really rich people down the road from you with all that land and all that money and all those resources and all that food? Guess what we did? We just stole a bunch of these animals from them, and we're going to give them to you. Because it's not fair that they have all those animals. And we're going to use force, we used force, to take them and give them to you. Because you deserve them. It's fair. And this is just a little taste of what it's going to be like. You should support us. And then we'll have actual government power to take even more from them. Those evil rich people. Flash forward in 2019. We don't really barter with land animals anymore. But we do have 40 Five million Americans in student loan debt, and it's a lot of it. $1.5 trillion or so. I had an advertising job after I got out of college, and it was not with political people. We sat at like an open concept office, and I would hear the girls talking, and they said, oh my gosh, I paid $600, $700, $1,000 a month in student loan debt. And I'm not paying this for five more years. This is for decades to come. They feel hopeless. And so you see Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, All the far-left politicians saying, you see those evil rich people on Wall Street? You see all those millionaires and billionaires who have all that money that you don't have? Guess what we're going to do? We're going to take it and give it to you. You just have to support us and give us power. It's the same tactics that have been used throughout history, and now we are vulnerable because we are all in so much debt. And who ends up paying for these programs, for for the free health care, the free college? Well, that's the basic answer. of We all pay for it, and that's what's so frustrating. I've paid off my student loan debt, and now I'm going to be taxed even more to pay off somebody else's. I think when you talk about who's going to pay for it, and we're just completely covering, we're all just going to pay for everybody's college, it really takes away from the importance of the conversation. We have a major crisis going on. Colleges are scamming us. 
Our guidance counselor programs in high school, just that you come in, you have a five-minute talk in 10th grade with your guidance counselor. She says, where do you want to go? What's your safety school? Okay, join this club. Do a sport. Do some community service. See you next year. You come back junior year, you apply to those schools, and then there's this culture of you have to go to the fancy school and you have to pay $60,000 a year. And if we talked more about that and we talked more about how we're actually being, oh, my gosh, just completely scammed by the cost of college, that's more effective and common sense. And I hope that we can get away from those conversations of, oh, free everything and get into the the nitty-gritty. And the left doesn't like to do that. So we know why socialism appeals so much to young people, but why has the women's movement like just almost like a sponge just taken up this philosophy? Well, I think it's really important to know, and I credit the Heritage Foundation for this, they have data and the UN has data that has proven throughout history in every country, the more free an economy is, the more free the women become. You are economically free. And so that's why I call myself a feminist because I know in America I could do whatever the heck I want. I had that meeting with my guidance counselor in 10th grade and she said, where do you want to go to school? What do you want to do in life? I had no restrictions. I have family members that also said it was be a teacher, be a nurse, be a secretary, be a flight attendant. Those were my options. I could do whatever the heck I want. And I know that there are women across the world who they report they're rapist and then they get lashed publicly. Because guess what? In the Middle East, there's laws. You're not allowed to be alone with men if you're not married to them. And so if a girl gets raped, this has happened in the last 10 years. A girl was raped by seven men. She reported it to the police, and she was prosecuted and given 90 lashes, more than her rapist received, because she was alone with a man, technically. Her rapist. So that's why I'm a feminist, because I believe that's not fair, and I want to help those women. And it's ridiculous that the left has taken it over. But kind of playing into that with family values, the left is also, when you think of people like Teen Vogue, Teen Vogue sponsored a table at the Socialist Party's 2019 convention. And they sponsored a panel, too. And guess what they talked about at this place? They said they have to get rid of the family structure to get communism and socialism implemented in our country. It really is very frustrating. And if we combat that with culture, with emotion, and with logic and statistics, like many of the speakers here uh, have been saying, I don't know if you guys have noticed, they keep talking about needing emotion. I think we can really start winning this over and have that culture war for feminism and socialism. Morgan, thank you so much. Thank you. We would love to open it up to our audience and uh, give you all the opportunity to ask questions. Let us get to you first with a mic, though, because we want to be able to hear you. I'm Marley. So hand in hand with feminism for me goes this idea of traditional masculinity that, you know, there is a, a man who should protect and respect women, whether he identifies as a feminist or not. But that's something I think we're losing in our generation. Even at this conference, I've heard, you know, comments about women and to women that I don't think protect or uphold, you know, their rights. So how is that something that we inculcate in our generation of men? I'm a strong believer in complementarianism and that we need to understand that men and women are different, but at the same time, they're equally valuable. We're two halves of a whole. And I think men need to understand that. And they do have a role of being the protector sometimes, but also they need to be softened by women. And that doesn't mean that women need to be soft the whole time. That doesn't mean that men need to be hard the whole time. But we need to just understand this reality and push men and women to be who they're supposed to be and not have them fit in some, like, box. I think what's great, too, about being so free in America is just a few decades ago, women basically were expected to go to school, and then you meet your husband, and then you move from your parents' house 
to your husband's house. You guys get a house together and he then takes care of you. And we don't have to do that anymore. We can search for partners that love us and support us. And it's not necessarily just an economic exchange or something that you're forced into by society. You can find a partner. You can take as long as you want and they can be as supportive as you want them to be. And you can have the freedom to change that if you don't feel comfortable in your situation. I think that's really great. Just uh, first a comment that, that feminism historically has always took on issues, social issues. For example, racism. There were feminists who were racist and there were feminists who were not. And that was a div- div- division between, between feminists. But the second thing, the more important thing is, is, is Scandinavia is okay. It's, it's capitalist country. Well, they don't, students don't have a debt there and there's universal health care. So if you're for universal health care and no student debt, you don't have to be a socialist. Uh, and that's exactly what we say is be a Republican, be a Democrat, advocate for those big programs of free college for all and student loan forgiveness. But when you have Bernie Sanders advocating for seizing the means of production of an industry and they're supporting him and they're saying, oh, he's my candidate and we're going to end up like Nordic Europe if we do those kind of things, that's what we are focusing on. That's what we need to tackle. Thank you. Yeah, and that, that, that gap between the Civil War and the 1890s, there was the fight between racism. But actually, that is the one time where feminists were able to come together. And, and most of the feminists who were pro-slavery and, and actually racist, they, they ended up dropping it to come together for this movement. Let's go over here. Uh, hi there. Just a few things. Um, I'm actually, I came here uh, to this country about five and a half years ago. I'm originally from Malaysia, one of these supposed moderate Islamic countries where in one of the states where the Islamic party controls the state legislature, you actually have gender segregated movie theaters. Same thing in Indonesia. There's a province, um, Aceh in northern Sumatra. They, yeah, they, they do get whipped in public after Friday prayers just for looking at a guy who's not their boyfriend for my, more than five seconds. Best day of my life when I came here. My question is re- regarding the the progress that um, America, as well as our um, other Anglosphere cousins, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, have made. Do you have any suggestions on how to point out to people that? It is in the tradition of the English-speaking world in particular that has made such progress in terms of gender, racial equality, and other sorts of things. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for your question. I I think that really comes by telling your story, that as increasingly we learn about the injustices that take place against women in other cultures, that gives us a much better picture and grasp. And we can't, we can't argue with your story. We can't argue with what you've seen. So that allows us to see, okay, this, we are blessed and privileged in America. Let's steward that well. Let's not take advantage of what we have. And let's also work with, you know, with our partners in in other nations to see that freedom come about. So my question would be, Women are always constantly under attack, whether it's coming from the left or coming from the right. There's always somebody who's pressing some sort of attack on women. The main thing lately has been with, you know, the transgender community who is now taking over sports and women. Being a conservative woman, what can I personally do or what can we personally do to try to claim back being an actual woman and not taken away by someone who feels that they are? So one thing I think we have going for us as conservatives is that we believe in the dignity of every human life from the point of conception until the time that they die. I don't care what their gender is, what their sexual identity is, whatever they believe in, we value that person and we care for that person. Thank you. Sometimes the way that like we value that person might not 
be the way that society wants us to value. And you don't have to necessarily say that you believe in what they believe, but you can say, I respect you. And I think that's important. You need to say what you believe and stand up for, you know, your religion or whatever your reasons are and be very vocal and very clear, but also be very vocal and very clear that you're not doing this out of a place of hate. You're doing this out of a place of love and just talk about these things. Whenever one of your friends, you're at brunch and your friends just bring up about like how Kelly and Conway looks like Skeletor, just stop them for a second and be like, hey, why are you judging a woman on their looks? And, and just make them kind of think through this. Could I actually take the last question? Do you Go mind? for it. I guess being a woman and being a conservative, one of the hardest parts that I find when talking to my liberal friends who are also women, they say, well, the Democrats or the liberals are the only ones who stand up for women and have a voice in our modern culture. How would you answer that? How would you respond to that? So I really love Nikki Haley's approach of with all due respect – When I ran for office, I had lots of instances of sexual harassment. I went to the party. I didn't go to the party in one situation. They all had different repercussions and different results, and I was able to kind of learn from that, but I always did it with respect, and I never went out to the New York Times. I was interviewed by the New York Times about sexual harassment in the party, and I did not put anybody on blast. The left would put everybody on blast and give you no chance to recover or move forward and progress together as a society and as a party. I thought this was interesting. I spoke at NYU two weeks ago, and there was half the crowd was like DSA or Dems. I always ask in the beginning. And there was this one guy smirked the entire time, interrupted me the entire time, asked a ton of questions of me, and I answered every single one. And I mean, I give a one-hour presentation with a million clips of Bernie Sanders, a million clips of the left and the different tactics that they use, a ton of history, a ton of statistics and videos. And this guy at the end... I asked him, so do you support seizing the means of production? You say you're a socialist. And he said, "Mm, no comment. And so I said, all right, do you want to defend what you believe in? And he said, I don't know. And then eventually I got it out of him. He said, I just don't think you're really well educated on this topic. And what was interesting, the left, the other Democrats in the room, the other literal DSA people looked at him. You just insulted a woman. And they turned on my side. And they said, "Um, I just want to make it very clear. I think you're very well educated and we just disagree. And it was very interesting to see the left contradict. They were on the team. They were also bickering the entire time in the back, raising their hands, rolling their eyes. And then as soon as he attacked a woman, oh boy, they came up to me at the end. We exchanged cards. I followed them on Instagram. We're friends now. So it's very interesting to hold them accountable when they do prove themselves to be hypocrites. All right, with that, we're going to end. I want to thank you guys again for coming out. I would really encourage you guys, we're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Please subscribe. We do this every week. We'll be here to answer more questions. I'll be happy to give our email addresses. But yeah, listen and let us know what you think. Thank you, guys. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal produced by Kelsey Bowler, Lauren Evans, and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.